Hello there. Welcome to the Main Question Podcast. We're glad you decided to join us for episode number two of season four. I'm your host, Ron Lisnett. Now, this may seem like an odd question, but what is your relationship like with the forest? If you live in Maine, it almost certainly plays a part in your life. It's virtually everywhere you look. It may provide you with a job. It may be the place you rely on to heat your home, where you recreate or just spend free time. It plays a big role in providing us clean drinking water and many other ecological services. The forest in Maine has often been described as a backbone of our economy and way of life. From traditional industries like paper and lumber to today's and tomorrow's high-tech products, biofuels, nanocellulose, valuable chemicals. Then of course there's tourism, fishing, camping, hunting, snowmobiles, and many other forms of recreation. All of these touch points with the forests of Maine are the subject of Jessica Leahy's work. A professor in Maine School of Forest Resources, she studies the human dimensions of forestry. In the most heavily forested state in the country, there's certainly no shortage of interesting research for her to dive into. For instance, how much economic impact do snowmobiles have in Maine? How can wood banks work like food banks and help people heat their homes? How can small woodlot owners in southern Maine best manage their forest holdings and leave them in good shape for generations to come? Far from being a monolith that represents the same thing to everyone, our relationship with the forest, as it is with many people in our lives, is complex. We talked about her research and about how Maine School of Forest Resources is preparing students to tackle these and many other issues and the expanding and varied career opportunities these students can pursue. Well, Jessica, thanks for taking the time to, to visit with us. I know uh, the novelty of another Zoom call is probably worn off long ago, but we appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for having me. Well, maybe let's start here. We often hear this fact that Maine is the most forested state in the country, and the last figure I remember hearing was 90% of Maine is covered in trees, basically. And so people might think about that and move on to their day. When you hear that, what, what, what does that mean for you? What does that signify for you? Well, my specialty is human dimensions of natural resources. So I study people and their relationships to natural resources. And I've studied different resources through time. My dissertation research, I went to the University of Minnesota. I worked in central and southern Illinois on reservoirs, and I was studying water management. When I came to Maine, on top of being hired into the School of Forest Resources, I the clear natural resource that is so abundant in Maine is the forest. And so quickly my research program began to focus on forests. And so because I do this human dimensions of natural resources, I think of the forest and its connections to people. And that kind of guides uh, how you would, uh, how I would describe my research program. So we have landowners, people who own property in Maine, maybe their house is on it, maybe not, maybe it's a woodlot, but we've got that. And then, but that's people. And I also look at how people use the forest. So we have people that own it and um, do that, but we also have a lot of recreation use that occurs in our forest. With Maine being privately owned, there's a lot of work related to public access to private land that's possible to do. 
So residents, landowners, recreationists, when you get many of them together, you end up with a community. And so I also study rural communities. And in Maine, that means forest-dependent rural communities or forest-located rural communities. So it makes it very easy for me because Maine is so forested. I can do, I can have a really broad research program and still be studying connections between people and forests. How would you describe those connections here in Maine compared to the rest of the country or for that matter, other parts of the world? Is Maine unique or distinct in, in any way? Definitely. Well, the private ownership really makes Maine stand out. We have we're about 94% privately owned, only 6% public, a little bit of the White Mountain National Forest, Acadia National Park, Katahdin Woods and Water. We do have lots of conservation land, thanks to land trusts and others who hold conservation easements on, on private land. I have a project right now called the Rural Youth Futures, and we're directly comparing Piscataquis County and Northern Somerset County with Coos County in Oregon. And it is really interesting how things are both the same and different. So both of these places heavily, heavily forested, but the ownership is different. So in Oregon, it's federally owned. In Maine, it's privately owned. But the youth, uh, and, and they're both diversified economies, right? So a little bit of forestry and a little bit of tourism and a lot of services, some declining manufacturing. Both are experiencing economic transitions. And so that is a commonality that we share with many forest, heavily forested places in the United States. And that makes for great opportunities to help with transitioning economies because there's so many questions about what the future has in store for individual landowners, the recreation use, the rural communities, and all of that. Now globally, I have done a number of projects and been able to, been fortunate enough to travel. I'm a part of the International Union of Forest Resource or Research Organizations. We're really fortunate in Maine to have the environmental protections that we have for the forest, and we have a very robust forest industry that has been long-standing and has shown evidence of sustainability. While there is certainly opportunities to improve practices, the more we know about how to manage sustainably, the more we can bring that in. Um, but you just don't see in Maine some of the stuff that I've seen as I've, I've traveled the world. In Hungary, they've had so much government instability that when I toured a forest in Hungary, it was planted black locust, and it was a community forest for the town to have access to fuel wood because on average Hungary has had a new revolution in government every 60 years and there are times where coal and oil is not able to move through the country during these times of instability and so the community took it in its own hands to plant black locusts as a governmental instability driven management decision. 
and I feel that we're, we have such a luxury to be in America and have the democracy that we have because that lets us manage our forest for many multiple uses and the ecosystem services that the, the richness that the forest can provide to us and we're not in, in such a, a mode where we need to think about meeting our basic needs with, with our, our forests. In Austria, there they have very strict land use rules, and that's again a major difference. Our private ownership, where landowners can make their own informed choices about what they or uninformed choices about what to do with their land. In Austria, they've really kind of it's still privately owned, but you cannot develop it. You can't make house lots. It's it's 400 years of being a forest, and it's never. <laughs> In effect, the laws do not allow it to be anything other than a forest. In some ways, that's good because that guarantees that, a, that the forest gets to stay as forest. And we do have major concerns about residential sprawl and other things, uh, other development, reducing the amount of forest land that's available. And then I've been to Finland probably more than any other country, and it's very similar to us It's as a, as a northern climate and all of that. What stands out there that I think we could work on here in Maine is workforce related. I toured a logging equipment manufacturer where they do, they have uh, great just uh, labor relations and they do, they have an exercise time where a trainer comes in and guides all of the workers through exercise. They work on machines from start to finish through the whole process. They're not on an assembly line doing the same thing over and over again. So the diversity of the work is fairly strong. There and we're, there are people in Maine working on our forestry and logging workforce issues. We've had a couple projects at the University of Maine related to that and trying to maintain our forest industry workforce. Is, is something that we're thinking about here in Maine. I guess we shouldn't take the general lack of conflict that we have here for granted, but are there some preconceived notions that people have about forests in Maine that you could uh, dispel or explain for us? A lot of people think the northern half of the state, big landowners, you know, that kind of thing, but there is plenty of forest in southern Maine too that's uh, a lot more broken up, but it's, it's certainly there, right? Yeah, and the, in the northern part of the state, I think people have a, don't necessarily realize that the ownership has changed. And so people call it paper company land, but that actually has transitioned over to different ownership structures, real estate investment trusts and timber investment management organizations. Retirement funds, for instance, will hold timberland as a way of diversifying um, income streams within their portfolio. So it's it's no longer the paper company that owns the land. The and then the southern the southern forests I don't think get the attention that they should. So in Maine of all the private forest land owners, thirty four percent are what we call family forest owners. They own ten to a thousand acres. I think that's really interesting because they all manage their land differently and you end up with this real diversity of the forest landscape over uh, over the course of the southern part of the state. And they're not forestry experts, where the northern land has foresters uh, guiding the stewardship of that land. In the southern part of the state, private landowners would use a consulting forester, and uh, not as many do 
as as you, you might hope for the professional advice that they'd get. But um, yeah, I think we don't necessarily, we don't think of the Southern forests the same as we think of that large Northern block of forest land that's, that's so contiguous. Maybe you could give us just a, a quick thumbnail of some of the research that the projects that you've been involved in. One that sort of caught my eye that, that you talked about, uh, we've heard of food banks, but Maine has wood banks. So what, what's that all about? Well, first I'll, I'll start by describing the research, uh, you know, the wide spectrum of stuff, and then we could talk about wood banks. The great benefit of being at the University of Maine is that we are a land-grant university. So we do, we do teaching like all colleges do, but we also have research and service. And we're small. And so a real advantage for me is that I get to work across this whole spectrum of possibilities of research projects that relate to forests and people. Other universities, you wouldn't have that opportunity. And that translates to student opportunities as well. They're, because we're so small, students can get involved in research and they can get involved in a lot of different topics. So I'm spread wide. I work on forest management topics. I've got a project related to ticks, Lyme disease, forest management, and landowners. I've got another one, the Rural Youth Futures Project, which I mentioned that is trying to help forested rural communities with understanding the perspectives of their youth and whether they wanna stay or leave their communities. I've got stuff related to in emerging technologies, so different uses of the forest, like biofuels and wood pellets, the so, uh, trying to understand the social acceptability of that. And then I have the social justice, I would put it kind of in, a, in that uh, category, or um, just trying to look at underserved populations and low-income populations. There's not a lot of funding uh, to do this kind of work, but I think it's really important to look at people who need assistance in Maine, and that led me to how do I do that? Well, wood banks ended up being a way that have forests and people, and in particular, low-income people who are heating insecure. So the wood banks, like you said, we, we've heard of food banks, but this is the quintessential Maine twist on that, isn't it? Yeah, so People, when they are food insecure and they don't have enough food, they seek out a food bank. Um, and so wood banks work the same way. People run out of oil, their house is cold, or maybe they heat with wood, they lost their job. You know, this period of temporarily needing some assistance, wood banks can, can fill that gap. We got started with it and I, we had a student, Sabrina Vivian, from the town of Blue Hill, she went to George Stevens Academy. She was an ecology and environmental sciences student, and she wanted to work on this. So she wanted something that would use her skills that she had learned from the ecology and environmental sciences program. And we started researching heating insecurity in Maine. Some people call it energy poverty, although that's a bit of a negative word and came across the idea of wood banks. These have gone on for, this is not a new idea that we invented, but we, but we helped to organize, analyze and organize and help people. 
we found out about wood banks. Churches have done this in New England for a long time. There are existing wood banks that have been in operation for a while. We put together a concept of how wood banks would, would work or are working, and we wrote an op-ed for the Bangor Daily News. That had a surprising reach out to a number of people who had, hadn't heard of this idea before. So we kind of used the power of our position at the University of Maine to amplify an idea. People started organizing wood banks in their local communities. One of them, the Waldo County Woodshed, has just gone like gangbusters um, and in the last seven years and, and really done a lot of good stuff. We then organized a summit. So a lot of the existing wood banks had never talked to each other. They've never, never learned from each other. And so we brought them together in a New England wood bank summit. And they shared ideas about the challenges they were running into, the opportunities, how they got started. And they gained, I think they gained a lot from being able to interact with one another. And that, again, was something that you know, we were able to try to track all of the wood banks down across New England, put the time into it, and bring them together and facilitate it. And then Sabrina, for her capstone, wrote a community guide for starting and running a wood bank. And that's available on Digital Commons. So people who Google community wood bank, it's one of the first hits that, that you get. And it's been downloaded hundreds of times largely across the northern part of the United States, but also in other countries. People have reached out to us about it uh, to, to um, learn more and get advice as they're thinking about starting their own wood bank. But we knew it'd be very easy for the University of Maine just to start some wood banks, right? I could hire students, we could run wood banks, but that doesn't allow the idea to be tailored to the community and it's not a sustainable thing. So we really focused on the scale up and in the community guide, we broke down the key decision points about how wood banks are structured. So there's certain considerations about, for instance, who qualifies? Where do you source your wood from? Where do your volunteers come from? How do you vet uh, the people who receive the wood? How do they have to come to you, um, or do you deliver liability issues and things like that? So we structured it where um, even in the appendix, they can have a meeting of their local people who are interested in it, and they can start to figure out what's going to work for their community. And um, that's been really good. The other thing that Sabrina did, she had geographic information system or GIS skills. And she used census data to make maps that intersected the communities uh, where people spend a high percentage of their income on housing-related costs. That's a, a, an available data from the U.S. Census. So that kind of tells us, um, you know, the lower, lower income uh, you are, but also just the percent... If you think about how in our monthly bills we have our housing and heating and insurance and things like that, we have our transportation costs, we have food, we have medical, and the more that your housing costs, which would include the heating costs, eat up your monthly budget, the more precarious you are 
should should something happen. So that was our social data. Um, and then she brought in the percentage of people who heated with wood, because in the housing survey, they actually look at primary heating source. So we could overlay and identify towns in Maine where a high number of people heat with wood and those people spend a, a large portion of their income on housing and heating. And that would tell you the, the areas that are going to be the most benefited by having a wood bank start in their community. We've, we were contacted by people who really liked the idea. They read the op-ed in the Bangor Daily News and they wanted to start a wood bank. We would pull up the maps, the suitability maps, and in some cases we actually recommended that they not start a wood bank. Their community might, uh, in, the, in the case I'm thinking of, their community certainly had um, people who were spending a high percentage of their income on housing and heating, but they didn't have very many people that heated with wood. And so I recommended that winterization programs, other energy efficiency programs would probably be a better focus for that energy, uh, energy, that's a pun, the, um, uh, that drive to try to support the community, that it would be better served putting that, ener that time into something other than, than a wood bank. A fair number of your projects deal with outreach and education for landowners, for the public. Can you talk about that? And are you main students involved in some of that work? I know you mentioned one project on the coast that was uh, a good example of that. Yeah, this project will happen next year. Carolyn Zigra is a student from Booth Bay, and we were approached by an island community off the coast, uh, leaving from the uh, Booth Bay Harbor. Uh, and this island community is trying to make some decisions about how to be the most adaptive related to climate change. They've got rising sea level, they have storms, they're having a lot of trees blow down, they'd like an assessment of their forest. And so anytime we can have engaged opportunities for our students, we really try to make matches. Now it's challenging because students can work at a, at a different time scale than communities want to. There needs to be two, a two-way street of student benefit as well as community benefit from the projects. So Carolyn uh, will be helping them prepare uh, for her senior capstone uh, forest assessment and strategies for adapting to climate change. And I think it'll be, it'll be really great. She'll be able to visit her parents <laughs> while she works on her capstone, so that's a plus. But also it's, a, it's an area that she's very attached to and it poses some really great forestry challenges because the islands, you can't do what you can do on the mainland. You have to use different techniques and the environmental situation is different. They're, they are you know, highly susceptible to climate change impacts and stuff. So that's gonna be really fun. Another outreach project that I've done a lot with is legacy planning for small woodland owners, family forest owners. We've got a series of publications that people can find at forest.umaine.edu slash legacy. We've got a guide for people who work with landowners, whether it's the town office, foresters, anyone on how you can help landowners plan for the future of their land after they pass away. So how do they get the ownership 
arrangement they want and what about the land use too because what we've found is people don't always when they when they pass away and they pass away without a will the land has to follow the the estate laws and it doesn't necessarily get to where the landowner had wanted some people want to donate their land to land trusts things like that uh, so these guides help with that and then other people care about the land use so that people have spent a lot of time caring for their forests and they would be pretty devastated uh, even after they're gone to have that uh, you know to have their land no longer forested or mismanaged and all of that so we have the guide for people who work with landowners we have the landowner guide itself we have a publication on wills in particular for research that we did in Maine I was surprised at the percentage I believe it was about one in four people didn't even have a will to pass their anything but also their land down to who they would like and a will is really quite affordable it does not have to be expensive but it, it is a, a perfectly acceptable tool for a land ownership transfer upon death. The, um, you know, people think they might have to set up an LLC or a trust, and that, that can be the case depending on what people want, but for, for many people, a will is a perfectly good solution. So we have a publication that kind of demystifies wills, um, really focused on the land land issue. Even people who have wills, uh, we found that people had outdated wills, so they've, they've divorced and remarried, their kids' situations have changed, things like that. And then the second was that the land wasn't even mentioned in the will. So when you meet with an attorney that's, that hasn't worked with people who own forest land before, they might be focused on your jewelry, your house, you know, helping you with those things, and they might not even think to ask, so do you own a woodlot? And you, you know, it would be better, it's a, it's a recommended to talk to your attorney about whether it's beneficial to list that specifically, depending on what you want. Um, and then the final publication we have is called, uh, it's uh, Stories and it showcases 16 different landowners and the and what they decided to do and it's the full gamut there's no right or wrong answers about who your future owners are going to be or your future land uses and this just tries to just share the stories of real people around the northeastern states and how they ended up at, in all different places but they actively did it it's very easy to procrastinate that again from our study we did in Kennebec County, we had people in their 80s telling us that they were going to wait until they were older to work on uh, their legacy planning for their land. I love it, right? Because that's so... Optimism. Yeah, and I think of my grandparents are in their 80s and um, that's that's great, you know. I, I think of them as older, but they might not. I, I should probably ask them that. The other thing that people said was they were waiting until they were they were going to wait until they were sick to do this planning. And that's really scary because when you're when you're sick, it it is really hard to make stuff happen and it doesn't and the in the land becomes a lower priority uh relative to other things. And so we're trying to get that outreach out there for landowners to try to get them thinking now 
and maybe taking some actions while they're, while they're young <laughs> and spry and healthy. How fast are things changing right now in the forest? There's new products, there's the traditional uses, and then you can't do a story these days about the natural world without talking about climate change. And so how fast are things changing and how prepared are we to adapt to what's coming? Well, I think the forests are already seeing the effects of a changing climate. So in Maine, our wind, our rain and wind events that we've been having, the presence of invasive uh, plants, the forest pests and other forest health diseases, some of the impacts are already happening and there's future impacts that are scheduled to happen, that are anticipated to happen. What I think about is that, again, I'm a social scientist. I do this human dimension stuff. So it's, it, there are great faculty professors up in the School of Forest Resources working on the biology side of things. We've got great stuff happening. But I'm thinking, how do you help scientists communicate with foresters to make sure that they know the latest science about what's happening? And how do you get, how do you educate? And then after they graduate, do continuing ed with foresters to help them understand how to adapt, do climate adaptation planning and practices. One thing I'm doing right now is attending a U.S. Forest Service training on climate adaptation planning and practices. And that's been super helpful to be a student. And I'm thinking of how I can bring it into my classes so that really early on, students, forestry majors are thinking about climate change and more importantly, trying to get an adaptive, flexible mindset for uh, making observations, keeping up to date on the latest knowledge, and then trying to manage the forest in a way that maintains the most options. One study that you did that sort of typifies what, what you're talking about here is the snowmobile industry, which is probably having a pretty tough year this year, I would think, with the lack of snow. Is this sort of an example of cause and effect uh, for, for some of what you're talking about? Yes. So that project was about estimating the economic contribution of snowmobiling to Maine. And on and on an annual basis, we estimated that it was over $600 million in economic contribution to the state. Some of that is driven by the actual travel and people going and staying in lodges, hotels, motels, eating in restaurants, having drinks, having a great time, being, uh, you know, basically a winter vacation kind of thing. The other half is driven by snowmobile sales. And so it's pretty interesting that uh, the pandemic, along with the winter that we're having, is pretty interesting. So the snowmobile sales are actually quite up, but travel is down. And so I'm not quite sure. We'll have to look at the numbers. We've got it set up so that we can recalculate each year based on the snowmobile registration. So the state, everybody has to have a sticker on their snowmobile. And once we get those numbers, we'll be able to kind of look at, um, maybe try to figure out how these things interplayed. I really like that project. It's another example of what the University of Maine can do for students who come from Maine. So Ian Hathaway was the student on that project. He went to the uh, in Limestone, the main math and science high school. He then came 
to the University of Maine for his Bachelor of Science in Parks, Recreation, and Tourism. Stayed for his master's. We noted his academic ability and skill set for this. He was a Maine registered guide and had done sea kayaking. He had all these skills that he worked on and built up his resume while he was at the University of Maine. So he carried out uh, that project and he got to work with stakeholders. So he got to present to the Maine Snowmobile Association, the uh, Department of Ag Conservation and Forestry folks, just uh, really did a great job. And I think that project also illustrates that the when we think about Maine's forests, it's, we think so much about the forest products and the forest industry. There's a whole nature-based tourism industry that is equally dependent on our forests, and we just have this great integrated system. And even in the School of Forest Resources, we have a forestry major, we have a parks, recreation, and tourism major, and we have a sustainable materials and technology major. So we've got all of it. We like, I think we represent the, the, the same of the, of the forest uses. Speaking to that, what does the future look like? It sounds like there's a lot more opportunities for students coming out of UMaine with a forestry degree, more options uh, than what you might think of traditionally being a manager of a large tract of land or uh, figuring out how to get the most out of it per acre or what have you. That I mean, the number of jobs and careers you can go into sounds like uh, it has expanded quite a bit. I think it's always been there, but it's the, it's the recognition of it. And so with our three majors in the School of Forest Resources, we just need students who like the forest. <laughs> they like wood, they like forest, they like being outside. If, if that's the kind of, if that describes you, then it's like, we'll just come and we'll figure out which of the three majors is the right one. So the forestry major is perfect for people who want to spend a lot of time outside, use technology, apply the science to actual management of forests. The parks recreationist and tourism is great for people that want to be park rangers, tourism entrepreneurs. Uh, there's that whole suite, conservation law. And then the sustainable uh, materials and technology are people that want to work on with wood and the forest product side of things. A little bit, it can end up being a bit more uh, of a, a lab or manufacturing setting. So of the three majors, that's the one that maybe with the less outdoor time, but it's perfect for people with an engineering mindset who really like that, particularly that combination of biology and engineering. So it's like, how do you take this biological thing, trees, which end up being a wood, um, and how do you make stuff with it? That's perfect for a lot of, a lot of people. Um, and yeah, there are career opportunities and in all of these. Our students are not just, that, that might be one myth, is that our students only work in industrial forestry, and that is not the case at all. Within our forestry major, they're working for a land trust, they're working for the U.S. Forest Service and other federal government agencies, and we still, we do also have a lot that work in on commercial forest land, that's still a very viable option. Forestry is not dead. So speaking to that, the, that technology, that, that last concentration you talked about, uh, Maine is poised to capitalize on this pretty well when you talk about some of the new products that these students are, are maybe uh, going to, to be dealing with, biofuels, nanocellulose, chemicals, 
it's not just paper and, and lumber anymore. I mean, th th this opens up a, a whole new arena. We have the Forest Bioproducts Research Institute on campus. We are, we are leading in these areas of emerging technologies that use the forest and the woods in different ways. As a social scientist, I know that some people find that kind of scary, like nanocellulose sounds, nano anything just sounds, you know, high tech, uh, who knows, um, biofuels as well, uh, you know, it can be scary for communities deciding whether to host a, a biorefinery or um, a landowner deciding whether to have a biomass harvest or things like that. So I'm interested in that, but I think personally, when I think about it, these are advances in, in sustainability. So biofuels in particular, a lot of that occurs with, within our existing pulp and paper infrastructure. And what we're doing is we're, we're utilizing more of the forest products that normally go through a mill but we can we can make extractions and then we can and we can take this leftover materials and do additional things with it and we can make stuff safer so some of the nanocellulose used in insulation instead of relying on uh, petroleum based fossil fuel driven kinds of things um, i think it's worth uh, we should investigate all emerging technologies to make sure that they are indeed sustainable and, and have scientists analyze and weigh, weigh in on it. But I have an open mind about a lot of these things because I'm so committed to sustainability and I think it's, it's worth looking and investigating them and, and deciding what the advantages and disadvantages are in a, in a holistic way compared to uh, some of our current fossil fuel reliance. When you put it all together, so many exciting opportunities coupled with so many fast-moving changes some of which are not good how do you put that all together in a big picture you know, look ahead in the coming decades what what, what do you you know I, I typically ask people what do they think they're going to see in their chosen field in five to ten years but for forestry you probably should think about a longer timeline so so how how, how do you how do you look out to, to the horizon and uh, try to figure out what what you might see. I'm not so crazy as to tell you what I think it's going to look like in a hundred years, but I know what's going to get us there is having, keeping at the forefront the concepts of resilience and adaptability. And so we need, I am trying to teach my students that. I'm trying to find pathways for rural communities to be resilient and adaptable and uh, have adaptability. If we can figure out how to do that, now teaching resilience and teaching adaptability, I don't, I don't quite know how to do that, but I'm going to give it a good shot. The, the big picture as well when, when I think about it is that we do a lot of stuff at the University of Maine that is in Maine, but we also do stuff nationally and we do stuff globally, but nearly all of our stuff has implications for Maine. So if I were to talk about the big picture in the future scale is going to be a really key thing and I, I think that with the supply chain disruptions that we had and things like that and, and probably because I'm biased towards sustainability that I think local food local wood thinking about things we can do within the state of Maine for our self-sufficiency and our resilience and our adaptability and all of that is is going to have a 
ever-increasing focus over the next several decades. And I think the other big picture is, is just that the University of Maine, because of the scale, and I think our scale is going to ever, ever more focus on Maine, the University of Maine then were in a great place to be able to be a part of what my big, what I think the big picture is. We've got our strategic values and vision where we are going to try to transform lives through all the stuff that we do. So our research is going to help people in Maine. Our teaching is going to educate people or the workforce that's going to contribute to Maine's economy. And our outreach is going to help people as well. So I think that the future going forward is that while we already play a big role in Maine's economy and in Maine's social fabric, the University of Maine is going to be even more of a of a contributor to the state. I could use that last answer for any the end of any podcast I do. That's great stuff. We appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for being interested. Thanks again for checking us out. If you want to find out more about Jessica's work to help family landowners manage and pass on their holdings, head to forest.umaine.edu legacy. On that main site, forest.umaine.edu, you can read about all the other great research and resources from Umaine's School of Forest Resources. Subscribe to our podcast series if you're so inclined. You can find us on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Drop us a line with any questions or comments at mainquestion at maine.edu. This is Ryan Lesnett. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question.